0: Well, welcome once again everyone to Redemption Hill Church. Just like I just prayed, we love to make much of Jesus. That's why we planted this church, right? And we're going to continue to sing and celebrate all who God is, and we're going to give Him all the glory that He deserves. And so once again, it is a blessing to be here. Um, just one quick thing, Ryan's grabbing some totes. I forgot to put them out, so if kids, if that serves the parents and the kids, they'll be back there. Um, so my apologies, I tend to forget. It's in a bin. Just keep looking. (laughs) Um, This morning we'll be continuing in the book of Galatians, as many of you know. Uh, We'll be in Galatians 2, so if you have your Bible, you can open it up right there. If not, it's going to be on the screen right behind me. And we'll be looking at, specifically, verses 1 through 10. Verses 1 to 10. And what we will read is that defending our freedom because of the gospel means that we're free from sin, just like we were singing this morning, Right? We're free from death. When you're set free because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, when you put your faith in Jesus, you have eternal life. So we don't have to fear death anymore. And we're free from being subjected to the law. That's that last part we're really going to be focusing in on today in our text. Uh, And we're, we're free, really, to live in a manner that honors God. We're not talking about morality, living a good life. Right? There's a lot of moral people in the world. We're talking about following Jesus and being changed by Jesus and therefore we live a particular way and we're free to do that. Uh, We can't move away from the unmerited grace of the gospel in whichever direction. If we move away in any direction, it's a move away from freedom and then slavery. I was thinking about this this morning um, when I was praying and preparing for this sermon there are a lot of religions and philosophies in the world that are going to tell you or give you an idea about what does it mean to be reconciled to God? What does it mean to know God? What does it mean to be saved? Every, every philosophy or type of thinking or religion has their own language that they use, but the concept is still the same. How do you know God or something within that? Framework And and this morning, Paul gets really specific about what it means to know God, what it means to be saved and set free because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In these verses, Paul continues his argument that there is no other gospel other than the gospel proclaimed by Jesus and given to Paul when he was on the road to Damascus. That was two weeks ago, if, if you were here. I mentioned that journey and the significance of that journey in Galatians 1. And in today's passage, we, we read that the scene kind of changes in Galatians 2.1, but once again, Paul continues to fight for freedom found in the gospel. So let's learn together and see what God has for us in this particular text. So Galatians 2, verse 1, and we'll run it all the way to verse 10. Here's God's word for us this morning. Then after 14 years, this is, Paul writing, remember. I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them though privately before those who seemed influential the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus who was with me for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me, mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Verse 10, last verse. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, there's a lot here. Admittedly, we will not cover all the details of the text, but I do want to focus on this idea of freedom. Uh, Let me give you an example, something that came to my mind when I was reading this text. One of the most significant moments in American history, at least modern American history, is probably the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, The civil rights movement was a struggle for social justice that took place mainly during the fifties and sixties. I'm just kind of those are some I'm reducing it tremendously. But it was social justice for blacks to gain equal rights under the law in the United States. As you know, Martin Luther King Jr. was one of the leaders of the civil rights movement, and you know one of the more memorable statements, right? Free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we're free at last. The statement appropriate for the civil rights movement actually comes from a song which the primary meaning is about freedom from sin through Jesus Christ. And just like Martin Luther King Jr., the Apostle Paul has a message of freedom to fight for and to declare. The freedom that Paul fought for is a spiritual freedom. It is undoubtedly a spiritual freedom that has temporal consequences, What you believe is going to affect how you live here on this earth. It's a freedom. It transcends age, economic status, rich, poor, middle class, whatever. It transcends race, nationality, and as we'll see precisely this morning, it's a gospel freedom that transcends ethnicity and religious upbringing. The first half of Galatians 2 is about maintaining the freedom found in the gospel, about maintaining that freedom. And we do that by fighting for the gospel and then declaring the gospel. So if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, we were singing earlier, I am a child of God. I want to think well about what it means to maintain this freedom that we have because of Christ. And so we've got to fight for that that's what we see today, and then we need to declare that, when we're going to see that today in this text as well. So as we move toward an understanding of gospel freedom, Paul in Galatians 2.1 continues where he left off from Galatians chapter 1. He continues to talk about his personal autobiography, which is really a testimony of the grace of God to save Paul and to sustain his ministry. We read in verse 1 that Paul is back in Jerusalem 14 years, probably after his conversion, This would be Paul's second trip to Jerusalem after being saved by God's sovereign saving hand. So we got the first trip in chapter one and we had the second trip 14 years later in chapter two. Between Paul's first and second trip, we know that Paul was in Syria and uh, I always pronounce this wrong, Cilicia, did my best, proclaiming the message of freedom found in knowing Christ. We also know that between these two visits to Jerusalem, there continued to be false teachers coming into towns and churches after Paul preaching a different gospel, preaching a what Paul calls a false gospel. I mean, just, just imagine for a moment that after I get done preaching through the book of Galatians, after I get done preaching week in and week out that Jesus is all a person needs to be justified before God and saved by God, after I get done proclaiming to you that you can't, Add to or take away from the finished work of Christ. I'm going to be saying that over, over, over again in many different ways. And then let's say I take an extended vacation. I'm going to go put my feet up for a month or whatever. And another pastor comes in and you start hearing something like this. Yes, Jesus saves, but you also need to do this. You need to do these particular things to be justified before God. If that were to happen, I would be furious. And as we see in Galatians chapter one, we saw that Paul was furious and we're going his fury is going to be picked up back on in chapter three when Paul says, "Who has bewitched you?" We also saw in Galatians 1 these false teachers tried to undermine Paul's gospel by pitting his authority up against the authority of the apostles in Jerusalem. Well, Paul sees through these tactics. He's going to go to Jerusalem to state his case before Peter, John, and James. It's also worth noting that Paul's decision to go back to Jerusalem is not just a rational decision. This, this, this makes sense. There's these false teachers, and I need to therefore go and talk to the guys who everyone respects, these apostles. These apostles. Now that is rational for sure, but that's what Paul says. Paul went back to Jerusalem because of a revelation that's in verse 2. Which means God gave Paul some type of marching orders. Now this isn't the time to answer the question, does God still speak to his people outside his word? Which I think he certainly does. But at the very least, we see that Paul's communion with God brings clarity about his path for God. And Paul's path was headed toward a confrontation about the nature of the gospel, what it means to be saved. Acts 15 is probably the context of Paul's visit in Galatians 2. Here it is. We'll read this, and it's going to make sense. But some men came down from Judah and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's what Paul's up against. and the apostles, and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But, again, here's the tension. Some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, and these are probably the Judaizers that I've mentioned already in previous weeks, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. When this trip happened in Acts, it's up for some debate with scholars but it's really beside the point. Nonetheless, the main point does remain. Paul and Barnabas need to contend for the faith by confronting false teachers. Unlike his first visit to Jerusalem, Paul's second visit was with friends, and his friends are worth talking about. We need to see his companions and Why they're there. Their inclusion provides some insight into the conflict taking place. We read in verse 1 that Barnabas and Titus accompanied Paul. Again, here's perhaps further context about what is going on in the book of Acts. We know from the book of Acts, Barnabas played a critical role in the early church, right? Acts 4 tells us that he was, quote, a son of encouragement. So he kind of had like the tagline, Barnabas, dot, dot, colon, whatever, son of encouragement, that's who he was. Barnabas is also the dude who, he, he, had, he sold a field. So he owned land, and then he took the money from selling the land and gave it to the apostles for gospel advancement. That's the kind of person Barnabas was. It's also significant to note that Barnabas was a Jew who was saved by the grace of God, and he became a disciple of Jesus Christ. Because he was a Jew, he was already circumcised, Barnabas's religious upbringing is significant because Paul's other companion, Titus, was not a Jew. Titus was a Gentile and a Greek. Like Barnabas, Titus played a role in the gospel mission with Paul. So if you read Acts, you're going to you're going to see Barnabas, you're going to see Titus. Titus shows up in 2 Corinthians. We actually have a letter from Paul to Titus, so if you keep flipping in your New Testament, kind of go toward the back, you're eventually going to run into a book called Titus. But Titus represents so much more in today's passage. He is a symbol, an example of gospel freedom. I think Paul went to Jerusalem this second time to confront the false teachers And he knew what Titus meant. His coming along with Paul was significant. It was likely that Paul was receiving pressure from these Judaizers, these groups, to circumcise Titus, but Paul didn't back down. And God blessed Titus because he went into Jerusalem, the bedrock of Judaism to fight for the freedom he has because of faith in Jesus Christ. You see, so much more is at stake than answering the question, does a person need to be circumcised in order to be saved? What is at stake is your freedom. I tried to picture what it would have been like for Titus to walk into Jerusalem with, with Paul. The best I could do is like a sports analogy. Should be no shock there, actually. Um, I'm, a, I'm a huge Chicago Cubs fan, Love baseball, and their manager is Joe Madden. And it would be like Joe Madden going into the clubhouse of their rivals, the St. Louis Cardinals and and i I would imagine all those players would be giving them a lot of long looks, like, what are you doing here? You cut the tension in the room with a butter knife, right? I think Titus' presence caused a similar tension among many in Jerusalem. And we read more about why this tension exists in verses three to five. Here are these verses again. But even Titus, again, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us Into slavery. So look in those verses and you see this contrast between freedom and slavery, slavery and freedom. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. When I say you, I definitely mean you. In these verses, we read Paul is going to fight for the pure and unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ. He calls his opponents false brothers. False brothers. What Paul means when he says they are false brothers is that what they were teaching sounded like the gospel, but they were adding to the gospel. They looked like brothers in Christ, but in actuality, because of what they teach, they were not brothers at all. Now, this may seem harsh, especially in our 21st century context where our ears are taught by our culture to be radically inclusive. There are times when false brothers need to be confronted for the sake of the church. Paul is defensive, and his defensiveness is accentuated because these false brothers were secretly brought in. They slipped in through the side door. They slipped into the churches planted by Paul to destroy Paul's message of gospel freedom. Uh, Verse 5 tells us the teachings of these false brothers would put the Galatian churches back into slavery on so these verses we see clearly the distinction like I said between freedom and slavery God's desire for you this morning as you sit and listen and as we sing is to be free is to live in the freedom that is found in knowing Jesus Christ Do not submit yourself to living in slavery by trying to earn your justification and salvation. It's been won by Jesus dying on the cross and then rising from the dead. If you believe that by faith, you are free. You're the most free people in this planet. So please hear God's heart for you. Christian, you do not need to strive to earn God's justifying favor. You can't earn His love any more or less than what Jesus has already earned for you. God does not love you any less because you miss devotions or because you forgot to pray this morning. Listen, reading the word and praying are means of grace for your life, for sure. Um, But they don't save you. Instead, they are a response to what Christ has done for you by dying on a cross for your sin. Therefore, dive into God's word. We pray. We fellowship. You're not going to earn God's love by doing those things. God's love for you is most clearly understood when he sent his one and only son to die on a cross for your sin. One of my favorite verses in the gospel of John is John 15 13. Greater love has no one than this. You want to know what love is? We use that word all the time. You hear it in so many movies and commercials and songs. You want to know what love is? That someone laid down his life for his friends. You will not find a greater love. And you can't earn that kind of love. It's given to you by the Father. These false brothers were saying, hey, you want to know God's love? You want to know his salvific love, his saving love, his justifying love? You need to do more. And Paul wasn't going to put up with it. We read in verse 4 that these false brothers were spying on Paul, they're spying on his companions, and they were spying on the church to propagate their false gospel. The word spy in verse 4 does have a negative sense. What we have here is like actually military language. So think about those movies you watch where there's spying going on and whatever, um, Jason Bourne or whatever. Military language, but it's being used kind of politically. These false brothers were playing the earliest game of like church politics. They were doing so by acting like undercover agents and conspirators and their goal was singular. They wanted to destroy Paul's gospel message. A quick Google search will reveal many false brothers who are spouting out false teachers for us today. From Paul's perspective, these false brothers are still stuck in bondage. They actually don't know freedom. They have chains around their feet and wrists. They are prisoners who come to see what was going on, but they came spying with no intention to be free, but to bring others back into bondage with them. Paul is not an elitist to say false gospels are being preached. I don't think so. His defense and warning are warranted. Why? Because souls of people are at stake. I can can imagine someone reading this and being like, who do you think you are, right? But why does it matter? Because your soul's at stake. Other souls are at stake. Freedom is at stake. God's desire is for, not, is for us to not live in bondage, but to live in freedom. You know, I get, I get worked up sometimes when, um, when people come and they challenge the gospel. Here's what I don't get worked up on. I don't get worked up on when someone comes up to me and says, hey, I don't like your polity, which is basically like how the church functions and what does authority look like in the church. I don't get worked up over that. I, f- I like a good debate. I don't get worked up over eschatology, the, the end times, what's it gonna look, look like when Jesus comes back and all that kind of stuff. It's a great debate. I don't mind talking. I enjoy it. I get worked up when people twist the gospel. That's when I really get impassioned. Why? Because souls are at stake. Paul's situation, I think, creates an interesting paradox. On the the one hand, the church is the place where all are welcome to come and hear the good news of Jesus Christ and to be set free from sin, bondage, death, and the burden of the law. The church is the place to hear about freedom. Freedom. However, if you mess with the message of free grace, which results in disunity and division, there is an exit door. Paul is not going to play games with false brothers. And for the sake of unity, for the sake of souls, we need to take the same posture as Paul. Paul said in verse 5, we did not yield in submission even for a moment. There's no doubt in Paul's mind that the battle for gospel freedom is worth fighting for. Paul's ongoing defense of the gospel does raise the question of why? Why, Paul? Why are you all worked up? Why is Pastor Sean all worked up? I could hear my oldest child asking me that question, "Why are you all worked up, Dad? Why does Paul fight for an understanding of gospel freedom that emphasizes a person's freedom? The short answer is found in verse five. Truth matters to Paul. Paul wants the truth of the gospel to be preserved for the Galatians, and he wants it preserved for you and for your children and for your children's children. Paul, pre- Paul presumes that if truth exists, then so do lies. If truth exists and it is not relative then other beliefs will contradict Paul's message of gospel freedom. And we need to be fighting for truth just like Paul. Not only for our personal lives, but we fight with each other as a church. That's why we're going to have community groups and discipleship groups. That's why we're organizing those things. We fight with each other for the gospel. We try to we work to apply it. For example, as, as a church, um, we have to reject elements of, say, legalism. A lot of people have heard that word before, legalism. Uh, the idea that there is a standard other than Christ that you need to live up to in order to be reconciled to God. On the other hand, we, reco- uh, we reject this word called antinomianism. I don't expect you to know that, but it's, it's kind of the other side of the coin to legalism. Uh, we reject the lie that once you are saved, you can live however you want Oftentimes, a person who wants the comfort of thinking that they're not going to hell, but they disregard how God calls us to live in light of the gospel. Or once you're saved, you can just live however you were living, right? We reject that. The gospel brings change. It brings freedom and change. And both are lies that Paul has to contend with. And these lies continue to be an insult to gospel freedom in our day. When a person is saved by the unmerited grace of the gospel... He or she is changed and able to live freely for the gospel. In love and with love, we defend the message of gospel freedom. I want to circle back to our friend Titus for a moment. Titus, the uncircumcised Greek who walked into the Jewish city with the Apostle Paul. Titus, who said he was a Christian. But Titus was different from the Jews who became Christian. Titus, as we see, came from a different culture. He was a Greek. He had a different upbringing. a different language. Now Paul holds Titus up as a person who was saved by the grace of the gospel, and he was now free because of the gospel. In my own head, I picture this scene in Jerusalem as like a courtroom setting, right? Um... The Judaizers were the prosecutors, and Paul, um, the defense lawyer, and the Jerusalem apostles, you know, these these guys that everyone respects, they're kind of like the Supreme Court. And at some point during the trial, Titus is, you know, called up to the stand. Titus, we want you to testify, we want you to answer a few questions for us. Here's the first question. Titus, have you been circumcised? Titus responds, no. No. Paul applauds his courage to speak the truth in what would have been in an uncomfortable setting. And on the other side of the aisle, the Judaizers are indignant. And how the Jerusalem apostles land on the question of circumcision would either create a rift with Paul or unite them to Paul. We obviously know how they ruled, and Acts 15 corroborates what we read in Galatians 2. The acceptance of Titus as a brother in Christ also provides a secondary consequence. Not only is the law not needed for justification and faith in Jesus Christ, but this means that the gospel is for all people. We should not miss how this applies to us. We're a relatively homogeneous community in our surroundings and our demographics are as well. There isn't much racial or ethnic diversity, comparatively speaking, right? It's just, It's the reality, and that's okay. God has us here to plant this church to reach this community. That is okay. But we need to be a church who welcomes people of all different types. The gospel isn't just for a specific segment of people. There's no such thing as an American gospel. It's a message for all people. And this was the subpoint of Paul's message to the apostles in Jerusalem. If Christianity is going to be a message for all people, a global movement, the gospel of free grace needs to be unshackled from the burden of the law. What I'm not saying is that the law is irrelevant. For example, we read in Matthew 5, 17, when Jesus says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus doesn't disregard the law, and we don't disregard the law. The problem is rightly understanding the law. When you continue to read Matthew 5-7, Um, the Sermon on the Mount, you see that Jesus ups the ante on what it looks like to live the Christian life. What I'm saying is that the law points to Jesus. The law is fulfilled in Jesus. Christ died so that the law would no longer be a burden, and now grace reigns and rules in the heart of God's people. As a result, the mission to the Gentiles has come into full force because faith in Jesus is the clear standard to know God. I was thinking about this this morning. Abraham. Abraham, we read in Hebrews 11, was a man of faith. He knew God because of faith. Abraham lived before there was the law. So how do we know God? God. By doing or by faith? And we'll actually get into that more in, in Galatians 4. So as a result, Titus is welcome into the community of faith because the law does not save. John Stott said this, the, the late John Stott, great theologian and pastor. The Christian has been set free from the law in the sense that his acceptance before God depends entirely upon God's grace and the death of Jesus Christ received by faith. The problem the Jewish Christians had with Titus is that he didn't have their traditions. They viewed the law as a necessity for knowing God. And Paul says, no, no. Only faith in Jesus sets a person free, and freedom is worth fighting for, it's worth defending, it's worth protecting, it's worth declaring. In verses 6-9, Paul does move away from highlighting Titus as an example, as a person saved by the unmerited grace of the gospel. Now Paul speaks more generally about the need to take the gospel to the Gentiles, to the uncircumcised, he went to Jerusalem not looking for compromise, but to seek the support and unity with these well-established apostles, right? We got Peter, who's called Cephas in our text. That's his Aramaic name. We got James, the, the half-brother of Jesus. We have John, the great John. What is interesting in verses 6 to 9 is how Paul references the apostles. Just, it's actually kind of surprising. Just listen verse 6, which typifies the tone of the passage. And from these who seem to be influential, I can see him just kind of writing casually. They seem to be influential, but they were, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. Now, one could say that Paul's comments about the apostles could be disrespectful or derogatory, like Paul, come on, man, show a little respect here. But that's not the case. Paul, Paul respects their God-given office as apostles, but he isn't overawed by their person because the gospel is bigger than any one person. So Paul isn't going to pander to them just because of their status. Oh, hey, look, he has apostle next to his name. Highlights, neon sign. Paul didn't care. Yet, Paul isn't going to disregard their position at the same time. Um, Another guy I want to quote here, Tom Schreiner. He describes Paul's perspective on leadership here. Paul's attitude toward the Jerusalem apostles is instructive. On the one hand, he recognizes their leadership and respects the position God has given them. On the other hand, he also recognizes their fallibility. In other words, fallibility meaning they're not perfect. They're sinners. Hence, final authority is located in the gospel rather than in any human being. Good leaders should be respected and honored knowing that final authority is located in the gospel rather than in any human being. There is no pastor above the gospel. You know, until Jesus comes back. um, You want to know what's going to happen to me? I'm going to die. I'll pay my taxes and I will die. After that, um, after I leave this earth, the gospel will remain. The gospel will still advance other men and women will rise up to proclaim the truth. There will be more Tituses who are called by the grace of the gospel and saved by the grace of the gospel to take the message of the gospel forward. I praise God that the apostles stood in solidarity with Paul. They sniffed out the lie and they agreed with Paul. There's nothing you can do to add to the finished work of Christ in a person's life. You are free. They gave him, it says, the right hand of fellowship. In other words, they recognized the validity of Paul's message and I think it's interesting that a strategy was now put into place to reach Jews and Gentiles with the gospel. We read that Paul and Barnabas were sent back out to preach the good news of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles and then the Jerusalem apostles, these guys with this great status, they were to stay local to declare truth to the Jews. I said earlier that the conflict between the Judaizers and Paul was like an early picture of church politics at work, right? In verse nine, we have a picture of missions strategy. Now that they were all on the same theological page, they used wisdom about how to get the message out. And as they went... As they went out, their plan also included the need to show compassion to the poor. Now, when I when I read through Galatians, when I get to verse 10 in chapter 2, I'm just like, who threw in that verse? It just it seems completely disconnected from the context. Again, here it is. Let me get to Galatians 2. So we have this whole thing about Judaizers and what is the true gospel and so forth and so on. And in verse 10. They asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Why is that there? You know, Upon further review, it, it makes complete sense. Paul and Barnabas were going out to declare the gospel, and they were also called to demonstrate the gospel by showing compassion to the poor, to the needy. Here is how ethics flows. This is where ethics flows from theology. How right belief, what you believe about God, leads to right action, caring for the poor. Therefore, churches who love and cling to the truth of the gospel also love and seek to demonstrate love and compassion for the poor, for the broken, for the hurting, messy people who come into this church. I'm not talking about the recent developments of social justice movements. I don't have a strong opinion on them. What I am saying is that because we are the freest people in the world because of Christ, then we are compelled to move toward the poor just as Christ moved toward us. We know that feeling of lostness. And without Jesus, we would continue to be lost and poor. Yet Jesus comes and he saves, redeems, restores, sets free. And so as a church, we go. And we will, as we continue to grow, and programs get into place, we will want to care for needy people, for the poor. So, uh, to end here, two results happened because of Paul's second recorded trip to Jerusalem. So you got one, Titus was accepted, right? Which gets to the nature of the gospel. There's nothing Titus needed to do to earn favor with God outside of God's electing hand and him and God giving Titus faith. And second, Paul's commission to the Gentiles was approved, which means the message of the gospel is not for an isolated group of people with a particular tradition or culture or nationality. But the gospel, the gospel of freedom is for people from all tribes, tongues, and nations. So may we be a church who embraces the freedom that we have in Christ and who declares that freedom to others for the glory of Christ.